WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And today, Monday, is always Mayor's Monday here on the show. But Mayor Garcia, Joshua Garcia of Holyoke, couldn't be with us. So we have in his stead Aaron Vega, longtime state representative from Holyoke. Holyoke being one of the, I think, two, maybe three municipalities in the state that actually have their own representative in the House of Representatives in Massachusetts. Aaron Vega is now the Director of uh, Planning and Development for the city of Holyoke, and we are really thrilled that he can be back with us on the show. Aaron Vega, thanks so much for being with us. I would really love to know from you uh, a couple of things that have been about a couple of things that have been in the news recently, but let's start with what was in the news this weekend, if we could. Dateline, Holyoke Council okays more than $500,000 in Community Preservation Act grants, yeah. and there are a number of them that are really exciting, including a couple of places in Holyoke that I did not know about, including the Hill Scott Tower. Um, I obviously know about the Wisteria Hearst Museum, and it does seem to me that what this is part of, or maybe part of, is a larger plan to make Holyoke more of a tourist destination and to make it more of a regional destination. And I know that's something that you were very interested in when you represented Holyoke in the House of Representatives, and I'm sure is front and center for your job now as the Director of Planning and Development for the city. So tell us more about that, if you would, please. Sure, sure. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Buzz. And uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, great to be here. Happy to, uh, happy to, happy to stand in for the mayor. Uh, he and I are kind of like Batman and Robin. I let him think he's Batman, so it works out well. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, and and just one other note. Um, actually, this last this last census uh, took a piece of Chickabee, one precinct in Chickabee. Now Rep Duffy does have one precinct in Chickabee now for the Fifth Hamden district. So everything sort of changed a little bit. So we're ninety five percent of the seat is all holy up, but we do have one precinct now with, with Chickabee. So um, how do you yeah, think and, those people feel? <laughs> <laughs> just just wondering just spitballing here there have to be part of holyoke come on now so um so it's um it is great to see a lot of effort being put into holyoke when we talk about regional impact and we talk about when we talk about western mass i think we have to talk about regionally right when we talk about our our shared college system our shared hospital system so many of the services kind of bounce between hamden county hampshire county um and of course you know we're we're much more regional than say some other parts of the state and so we always kind of have that collaborative approach and so yoni globgauer our our director of sustainability and conservation has been leading the effort on the revitalization of, of Scott's Tower and of Anniversary, Anniversary Hill Park, which is a huge park um, set behind Bowdoin Village and off of Scott's Tower, kind of up from uh, community fields and has a long history. I mean, there was a pool up there back in the day. I mean, it was part of the, uh, you know, part of the revitalization efforts in the 50s um, and a lot of federal money came into it. So it was always a regional attraction for people to come to. So obviously people from Hoyok, but again, all these parks, all these sort of recreational 
assets that we have throughout the valley. You know, it's not just Hoyokers that, mar that walk around reservoirs here in Hoyok, right? I mean, we welcome everyone to come and enjoy our natural resources, um, whether it's Woods Hole out in West Springfield or all these different places to go. Um, and so the revitalization of Scott's Tower and Interview History Hill Park would just be such an asset for Hoyok, obviously, but also for the region. When we talk about, also talking about preserving lands for conservation, I think this is a really important step. Um, and so great use of the CPA funds, as you mentioned. Um, you know, this has been something that we implemented a few years ago. I know Northampton and our other neighbors over in East Hampton, other cities have it. It's a great program. Uh, obviously, we were able to leverage the local the local funds that come in through the tax assessment, um, leverage those with state funds. And, you know, we had a, actually a good champion with CPA and, and Governor Baker. And I think we have an equally good champion with the, with Governor Healy. So I think it's a great program and hopefully we'll Hopefully we'll keep it strong in the state of Hoyoke. Uh, I think around the same time that the city council approved those, those spending funds on some great projects, they also put forth the ability for a ballot question to be on this ballot this, this fall uh, to lower the, the impact, uh, or lower the CPA fee from 1.5 to 1%. So we'll see what the people of Hoyoke think about that. Um, but again, great projects, uh, anniversary hill, Scott's Tower. I think the Wisteria Hearst got some funding, as did some private developers. So we're really great to see. It's really great to see some private people, private development coming in, working on housing, trying to rebring back some housing opportunities on High Street. Uh, so the revitalization of High Street is, is long overdue and has a lot of focus right now. So CPA is just, again, one of those small pieces that a local municipality can help this development, right? I mean, there's, you know, other than ARPA money right now, which is sort of unusual, right? In normal times, there's really not a lot municipalities can do to help private development or to preserve housing or preserve open spaces. So CPA is such a great program. Well, let me ask you a bit more about that, if we could, please, Aaron Vega. Yeah. And it, it, I think it would be useful and helpful for our listeners to know a bit more where the community field is and where Scott, where Scott Tower is, and more specifically, and or in addition, what is Scott Tower? I mean, this is an extraordinary uh, photograph of this stonework, but what is it? Yeah, my understanding is it's, it's part of a lookout system. I mean, so it's really, I mean, it's on top of, if you go to Community Field, which is, you know, right near the Soldier's Home, basically across from the Soldier's Home, um, and Community Field is, again, a beautiful park that, that we uh, rehabbed many years ago. Great place sets. Uh, there's, that's where the ice skating rink is and uh, a lot of picnic tables. But there's a path up there you can still take. It's open. It's a great walk. You can see all the old bridges that were made with uh, WPA funds back in the day, as I mentioned. Um, I think it was called Shimora Pool uh, was up there back in the day. Um, and Scott's Tower is this sort of iconic image um, and again, you can look back at the old postcards and the old, all the old historical photographs of Hoyoke, and there's a lot of photographs of, of Scott's Tower. And um, it's, it's beautiful in its own way right now, right? A lot of graffiti. Um, you know, it's, it's become a place, uh, I think, a place for uh, young people to kind of hang out uh, out, of, out of the way and, and uh, do what they do in high school and whatnot. But um, there's a lot of graffiti up there now. Uh, there's unfortunately been a lot of cleanups because there's been a lot of broken glass and trash up there. So the community has really adopted this over the last seven to eight years. There's been a friends group up there that helps clean it up. So I think to see to see the momentum that happened in the community first, and then the city kind of followed that. And again, Yoni's been doing a great job of kind of organizing those cleanups, organizing the, the walks to go see this area, because he's actually been working with, um, I'm going to say it wrong, I know it, but Celestial Trust, 
Um, they're, they're an organization that he's been working with to preserve the property up there. They've been able to leverage a lot of funds. So um, it's exciting to, to open this space back up to the public. Like I said, it is open now, but there's nothing really up there that's, you know, really amendable uh, other than walking around. Um, you can still get up the tower. It's a little bit precarious, uh, but uh, you still can get up there and see this amazing view of the valley. The newspaper coverage, this was in the Republican over the weekend, uh, also noted on the CPA funds, 95000 to the Wisteria Hearst Museum, which we've uh, covered recently on the show with regard to the WPA uh, exhibit that is there. And it also... This conversation brings me back to the question of the Victory Theater, which is mm-hmm. likely to be of enormous economic consequence to the city of Holyoke, should it be able to reopen. So I would appreciate your thoughts with regard to these regional uh, venues, one being the Wisteria Hearst, which is an extraordinary museum and just a wonderful, beautiful aesthetic place to, to visit and to spend time. Uh, I'd also I'd like to know about your views about that, the regional attractions that Holyoke is trying to exploit and utilize. Uh, and I would like to know about the Victory Theater as well. Sure. Well, the Wisteria Hearst, you know, has been great. Um, I think it's really changed over the last 15 years with some of the new directors um, and the newest director, Megan Styler, who's over there, you know, just a really great asset to really open it up to the public. Um, you see a lot different kind of art shows that have happened there over the years now. There's a great show there right now. Um, there was a Black History Month um, exhibit that's happened there, um, talk, highlighting the African-American story in Holyoke. Um, and they've really just been much more open to to bring the community there. And again, obviously a struggle with, with COVID. So anything we can do to, to support the museum, even in and of itself, the house itself, of course, is, is historical, um, you know, moved, moved from Haydenville uh, after the floods uh, by the, by the uh, Skinners. Um, and uh, I think they're actually gonna be bringing back the, uh, the Skinner tour, the servants tour that Enchanted Circle Theater did there, it tells the story of the family and of, of workers in the mill. And so just a really, really great place, especially now that we celebrate our 150th uh, in the city of Hoyoke. You know, the Wisteria Hearst is a place where we can look at our history, but also sort of project into the future of what we want to do when it comes to arts and culture. And I think that ties in, as you said, to the Victory Theater. When you look at the Bushnell down in Connecticut, when you look at Worcester, you look at Keene with the Colonial Theater, these theaters that are revitalized and brought back are, of course, a huge impact for the for the whole city, right? I mean, when you go to these theaters, it's a, it's a it's a driver to bring in additional restaurants and entertainment. Um, and we have some of that already around the Victory Theater area. But having that theater, again, is a regional impact. All the studies that are being done uh, to talk about why this is a project worth doing indicate how far people will travel for a show. And when you talk about the kind of shows that can come to the Victory Theater, it's not a competition with Springfield and the, and the Mass Mutual Center. It's not a competition with anyone. It's another asset because the size of this theater and the shows that it can bring are different than some of the other places. Um, and we all travel. Probably. Yeah, it's, bi- it's big, Aaron. It's bigger. It's, it's bigger. It's has, it, what's, what's, bigger. Yes, the Victory Theater is the, it would be the bigger one. So with those regional touring shows, we'll be able to come here. The, the depth of that stage and the size of the, of the flywheel of the, of the stage allows for much bigger productions to come to this area. So it would be a huge asset. Again, people travel 30 to 60 miles to see shows. So when you talk about that radius, you know, we're talking about upstate New York. We're talking about drawing down from, you know, southern Vermont, New Hampshire, of course, across the state. And of course, as everyone on this call understands, you know, our relationship in Western Mass with Connecticut 
you know, which is something that is not always quite understood when you go a little more east, you know, we're able to draw people from all over this area. So it's a huge project. It would be a huge driver for downtown uh, Holyoke, for Holyoke in general, but it would have that regional approach. And I think that's that's what I've been trying to bring when we talk about things in Hoyok. When we talk about tourism, we talk about restaurant week, we talk about the things happening in Hoyok. It's to add to the fabric of Western Mass, right? I mean, I know that there's great assets in you know East Hampton and Northampton and all the way up in Deerfield and Greenfield and out in the Berkshires. We want to be part of that conversation, right? We've got one of the most visited children's museums in the whole area. I want people to come to that children's museum and then do more, right? Go check out Pulp, go see uh, a show at Gateway City Arts or make sure they're having some food at some of our new restaurants. The Victory Theater would be able to kind of pull all those things together, right? If you have people coming in, you know, hundreds of people coming in every week to shows, it's gonna bring more, more foot traffic to those restaurants, more foot traffic to the artery, more foot traffic to the other things going on in Hoyoke. Um, not an easy lift obviously it's a, a pretty big lift but we have some great people uh great support obviously with our de delegation obviously rep duffy and senator Velas, but also even when i was there as rep we've talked to the area reps the western mass delegation the area mayors about how this will be an asset to their to their communities as well right it's it's having people have another opportunity for work it's having those opportunities when it comes to education right we want to make sure that there's an ability for the for the victory theater to have an educational aspect to that people who want to study theater young people want to get into theater not just acting but the stage hands and the lighting and the sound the, the production sort of things this is going to be a great asset for all those different regional schools to give those students an opportunity to get that kind of real life experience we're speaking with aaron vega who's the director of planning and economic development for the city of holyoke we're going to take a quick quick break and when we come back i want to ask uh, Mr. Vega, two two questions about two questions that are raised by the coverage in the media over the weekend with regard to CPA funds. One is the hundred thousand uh, dollars for Phase Two of the Anniversary Hill Scott Tower restoration. That sounds doable. It's a hundred thousand dollars. You know, we're talking about getting rid of graffiti and fixing up the place and restoring it to its previous grandeur. I got that. And a hundred thousand dollars is going to make a significant difference. What I would like to know about the Victory Theater, which is a multi-million dollar project that's been going on for years, is do we see those doors opening anytime soon? Also, what about the ballot question and whether or not these CPA funds, now so vital to Holyoke, are actually going to be cut? We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. I'm going down to the corner store. Sounds like the beginning of an old chestnut from a mainly bygone era. Unless you're at the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Then when you say you're going down to the corner store, you mean Cooper's Corner. And when you walk in, you might feel like you've stepped into a bygone era. It's not too big, not too fancy. Your neighbor is the person behind the counter. And Cooper's is the kind of corner market that's cornered the market on everything on your shopping list. Well, almost everything. Trash bags, cilantro, dish soap, pork chops, tempeh, paper towels, Riesling. And 
Like the corner stores of old, but with a very Florence flourish, Cooper's Corner is still a mom-and-pop shop, supporting the other mom-and-pops in the valley. Salad greens from Hadley, coffee roasted in Northampton, honey from Deerfield, kombucha from Greenfield, and they've got all the stuff you need from farther afield, too. Greek olive oil, Italian pasta, German Riesling, Cooper's Corner, an old chestnut of a corner store on the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Open at 6 a.m. every day of the year. Have you ever gone swimming with a polar bear, scuba dive with crocodiles? Amos Nahom has, and his nature photography has made him the BBC's Wildlife Photographer of the Year twice. Now he's coming to Northampton's Academy of Music for an Earth Day show Saturday, April 22nd. He'll share his breathtaking images, the thrilling stories behind the photos, and his message of harmony with the natural world. Visit aomtheater.com to get your tickets today for Amos Nahom, funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism, and visit Hampshire County you're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we continue our conversation with Aaron Vega, a long time, eight years in the State House of Representatives representing the city of Holyoke, now the Director of Planning uh, and Development for the city. Uh, Aaron Vega, before we get back to this question about regional development and regional sites and venues and uh, how to make Western Massachusetts more cohesive and more prosperous, I really should ask you a personal question, which is, how much do you miss commuting to Boston? <laughs> oh, I, I miss that drive sometimes. Um, I miss the people there for sure. I miss some of the actions, obviously, and um, but the drive, not so much. Uh, you know, sometimes everyone talks about the drive, and it wasn't always that bad. You know, it's part of the, part of the job. If you time it out right, it, it can be, you know, it can be a nice time to listen to the radio and catch up on things and uh, make a few phone calls. But um, when it's a bad drive and it turns into a three-hour trip uh, to Boston, it can it can be a downer for the whole day for sure. You know, if you go twice a week, it's not too bad. The times you got to go three or four times a week, that's that's where it gets a little tiresome. Yeah, makes me exhausted just hearing about it. I I, I would like to go back to this question of yeah. Community Preservation Act funds. Uh, yep. And there is a piece here that is uh, concerning. Uh, here is, I'm quoting now from uh, Dennis uh, Hohenberger's piece uh, in The Republican. Yep. The council, meaning the city council of Holyoke, also approved a November ballot question asking voters whether to lower or keep the current 1.5% surcharge. And I take it that means a 1.5% surcharge on property taxes to yep. fund the Community Preservation Act. The Finance Committee, that's the Finance Committee of the City Council, ultimately agreed on a 1% rate as a compromise. I'm not sure as a compromise for what the story doesn't quite say. Could you give us your perspective uh, with regard to these funds? Sure, sure. And I think, you know, like many communities, we're always looking at the tax burden on people, right? So, I mean, I think this is where certain councilors saw this as a discussion to be had now with the with the ever-increasing costs of living going up. Is, is this 1.5% on the property tax, you know, something that should be addressed and looked at? Um, it did pass, as you mentioned, to go to the ballot. I think that some people who voted yes uh, really strongly want to either see it reduced or, or gotten rid of. Um, I think some of the people who voted yes were sort of saying that the people should have a choice. People should speak on this since it is, you know, dictated by the people to vote. So I personally would, would be voting to keep it at 1.5%. I mean, what we know is that 
we annually, we get about $460,000 just from our portion, not to mention the match from the state. Um, it's also important to mention, you know, that when you talk about this 1.5% CPA surcharge, you know, if you have a, if you have a home, you know, at $179,000 value, you're paying 23 bucks a year because the first $100,000 is exempt. So you're really only paying the 1.5% on 79,000, right? So that has to be taken consideration. So if you have a $800,000 home, right? I mean, the first $100,000 is taken out. A lot of the people who live, you know, in homes that are valued less than that aren't paying anything. So it's, I agree. I mean, the cost of living is expensive now, right? In Massachusetts, we know it's one of the most expensive places to live, right? We see when we go to the grocery store and everything's going up. Um, but when we talk about that small amount and the big impact it's having. You know, we talk about return on investment. The CPA is a huge return on investment because not only does the money stay local that we're all paying, right? So most of our taxes that we're all, you know, sometimes get upset about is leaving our community, right? It's going to the state, it's going to the feds. Some of it comes back, but obviously not one for one. This stays in our community and the state gives us money to match it, right? So whatever that percentage is, right? You're always going to people say, oh, the state doesn't match enough, this or that. but they're matching some percentage of that so we can even leverage more funding. So from my perspective, it's huge. Um, and I'll be voting to keep it at 1.5%. Um, it's a great tool from my perspective, and it doesn't even run out of my office. And I really encourage you to bring in, you know, bring in Megan McGrath, who's the chair of the, of the uh, local uh, CPA committee and Amy Landau, who's the director. Um, but, my office, right, I'm the economic development planning office. I have so few tools to support projects. I have the Hoyoke Redevelopment Authority. I have the EDIC, the Economic Development uh, Industrial Committee, right? And so I have all these committees and all these plans, but I have no funding. I have very little funding to help projects. So often when projects are coming to the Redevelopment Authority looking for support, we basically tell them to work with Hoyoke Gas and Electric because they have some of the best incentives for, for development. Um, they're going to give you that rebates and they're going to give you some maybe some uh, interest-free loans. I tell them to go to CPA, right? If you're looking to preserve a building, if you're going to be doing a mix of housing, low-income, moderate housing, uh, workforce housing, maybe mixed with some market rate, I, I direct people to go to CPA. Um, so it's a tool that I'm able to use for developers. Um, again, it's not my funding. Uh, but I'm able to sort of wrap it around, right? So whether it's housing, I'm going to say, go talk to Alicia and Office of Community Development, connect with Megan and Amy over at CPA, connect with Mike and Jim over at HG&E, right? A lot of my role sometimes is to connect those people to the funding, because unfortunately, my redevelopment authority or my HEDIC doesn't really have the funding to, to help support private investment the way CPA does. So Director Aaron Vega, uh, uh, this is Buzz. I, I, I want to ask the question that we have a, the CPA we keep talking about is the Community Preservation Act. That's a state yep. law that allows localities to charge these surcharges on property taxes um, that we were yep. talking about a moment ago. And there's a mission that the CPA wants to promote. How is that different than what the Helioke uh, Redevelopment Authority wants to promote? It's not that it's different. I mean, I, I would say, you know, with the CPA, the, the three buckets, of course, are open space and recreation, historic resources, and community housing. The Redevelopment Authority, I think, looks at all those projects as well, 
and beyond. I mean, we're also working on the public art stuff. We're also helping to aggregate property for housing for the housing authority. Uh, we're working in collaboration with our uh, Transformative Development Initiative fellow from Mass Development, right? So Redevelopment Authority is kind of, it's almost like our development arm, if you will, for the city, right? We're, we were able to acquire property. We're able to say, we've done the survey. We have this urban renewal plan. We're guided by this urban renewal plan telling us what the community already wants. So if we know a location, we say, this should be a grocery store. The ability for the HRA is to say, I don't have to go to RFP. I can go to you know a grocery store owner and say- RFP is like request for proposal. And make it happen, exactly. So there's a little bit different procurement. But again, our funding, our funding only comes from any property that we get and then sell. So, and again, our goal as a municipality isn't to make money, it's to have development happen. So often when we are selling any property we have, you know, we're not selling at the highest rate we could be, we're selling at a rate that's gonna get it developed and be in perpetuity, hopefully, right? Being a taxpaying entity, bringing in jobs, whatever it may be. So again, we don't have, we don't have any funding sources coming into us in the redevelopment authority unless we actually sell property. It does seem to me, and tell me if I'm being Pollyannish about this, that the uh, CPA actually more than pays for itself, not only because of the leveraging of the dollars, but because of what it does to uh, increase the value of property throughout the city. And the city is, like every municipality, restricted to real estate taxes. I mean, yeah, sure, there's some, there's some additional funds for lodging and for the uh, cannabis industry. But by and large, I mean, 95%, I think it is, plus of the money that cities have to spend come from real estate taxes. And this increases the value of businesses throughout the city. So the city actually, I think, makes money on the CPA. It doesn't spend the people's money. It really gives it back. And I'm wondering if you think I have that wrong and if you could amplify on it if I have it generally right. I think you have it generally right. And I think that it's, you know, it's one of those, you know, penny wise, pound foolish situations, I think, unfortunately, because it's, we're looking at the immediate. Um, and when you look at, you know, what a 0.5% reduction would do, it's minuscule, right? On the payer's end, but on the receiver's end, when you add up that 0.5% reduction, it's talking about, you know, Amy Landau, who's the admin, it's already part-time. We don't even have a full-time person, right? And that's a group of volunteers that are on the board. Uh, and again, Megan McGrath goes above and beyond as, as the chair, and they all do. We reduce that 0.5%, it's coming out of the admin, right? So now you're gonna have an even, you know, what, quarter-time admin person to manage hundreds of thousands of dollars? It doesn't make any sense. Um, the other thing I think it does is it, it fills the gap, you know, when you think about the Wisterhurst and the Scotts Tower, it fills the gap on those public projects, right? I talked about the private projects. So I know that the Wrights Block uh, got one to preserve that building that's going to bring in housing. That's huge for us because, as you know, we've talked about many times over the last 10 years, um, the economics of redevelopment here in Western Mass isn't the same as Eastern Mass, right? It's gonna cost us the same to redevelop, some, to redevelop a building. Um, but in the end, you know, when you talk about market rate or whatever you're gonna be getting for rents, you know, we're not getting East Boston numbers. We're not getting Somerville numbers in Hoyoke and in Northampton. You know, it's creeping up there, right? Um, and Chickabee, West Springfield. So CPA helps close that gap. It helps close that gap to bring housing back. It closes that gap to preserve our historical structures and it preserves that gap for places like the Wisteriahurst and for Scotts Tower to preserve those open and historical spaces. So without that, again, 
municipalities, as you mentioned, especially Holyoke, doesn't have any kind of free cash that we're able to just put into these projects. The quote unquote free cash is always going to plug the budget, support overtime, you know, pay for new fire trucks, you know, all, you know, pay our debt services. There's no funds that we have that we can support projects like CPA. And that's why it's so important. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Aaron Vega, who is the Director of Planning and Economic Development for the City of Holyoke, former longtime state rep. Thanks so much for being with us today, Aaron. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, everybody. Have a great rest of your show. Thanks for inviting me on. And, uh, and just real quick, yes, the Victory Theater doors will open. I don't have a date for you, but we're working hard to make it a reality, and all the support will be appreciated. So Th- that was that was great, Aaron. That was the question I was afraid to ask because I thought it would take too much time to answer. But you did it. You asked the question and answered it. God, what a great guest you are! Thank you so much. <laughs> hey guys, have a great day. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Tonight, the East Hampton School Committee will meet again to discuss the status of the former superintendent candidate, Vito Perone. The East Hampton School Committee has received national attention after rescinding their offer to Perone to become the district's next superintendent. Originally, news outlets reported that it was because Perone addressed two female school committee members as ladies in an email. But it has since been revealed that in that email, Perone had requested around 14 weeks of paid time off per year. With several committee members on the fence about offering Perone the job in the first place, the request pushed the school to rescind the offer. Tonight's meeting will be held on Zoom and begins at 6 p.m. The former principal of Northampton High School, who left after referring to a group of students in a derogatory manner in an email, was the highest paid employee in Northampton last year. Mass Live reports that Lori Valiancourt received an $80,000 settlement from the school to leave her job last year bringing her total pay to $195,430. Valiancourt signed the separation agreement with the school district on October 14th, about seven months after she was placed on leave. The Amherst-Pelham Regional School Committee has reached a tentative agreement with the union representing administrators in the Amherst and Pelham Public Schools. The deal is pending ratification later this month by the union membership and school committee. The agreement comes as negotiations continue between the school committee and the Education Association, which represents teachers, paraeducators, and clerical staff. The school committee and teachers union return to in-person talks at the middle school tomorrow. For today, look for lots of sunshine. It'll be milder, high 62 to 66. Tonight, mostly clear, overnight lows 34 to 38. And the outlook for Tuesday, sunshine and clouds, breezy and mild, highs in the low 70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La ciudad de Holyoke celebró el jueves la dedicación del edificio del Ayuntamiento de la Ciudad como parte de la celebración del sesquicentenario de la incorporación de Holyoke como ciudad en 1873. Un hecho particular es que el edificio del Ayuntamiento de Holyoke nunca se dedicó hasta su finalización en 1876. La comunidad de Holyoke celebró la fecha de incorporación del 7 de abril de 1873 con una ceremonia de dedicación en el Gran Salón de Eventos en el segundo nivel del edificio de gobierno. La ceremonia inició con música de la banda de gaitas Caledonian e incluyó la participación del coro madrigal de Holyoke High School y el cierre a cargo de la Western Massachusetts Senior Band. También se destacó un reconocimiento de tierras compartido por Rhonda Anderson, comisionada de Asuntos Indígenas del Oeste de Massachusetts, junto con Larry Spotted Crow Man, quien hizo un canto sagrado. 
La historiadora de Holyoke, Penny Martorell, describió los detalles históricos del edificio de gobierno de Holyoke e invitó a la audiencia a aprender más en la exposición temporal de Wisteria Hurst sobre el edificio de la alcaldía. La ceremonia de dedicación contó con la presencia del alcalde de Holyoke, Joshua García, oficiales electos tanto del Consejo Municipal y el Comité Escolar, y jefes y personal de las diferentes oficinas de la ciudad, así como la representante Pat Duffy y la vicegobernadora de Massachusetts, Kim Driscoll. El evento concluyó con la develación de una muestra de la placa conmemorativa que se instalará en el exterior del edificio de la alcaldía, la cual señala la fecha de construcción del edificio y su dedicación 150 años después en 2023. Este es uno de los eventos más destacados que forman parte de las celebraciones de los 150 años de Holyoke que se estarán llevando a cabo durante 2023. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And this is our Black in the Valley segment with the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks and Professor Carly Tartikoff. Let me turn the microphone over to you. Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks. Thanks, Bill. Um, we are really glad. Uh, Dr. Tartikoff is not going to be here physically, but she is tuning in uh, because she's very much interested in the topic we're talking about, African-American English. And we have somebody here who has um, had an extensive period of time doing research, teaching, um, encountering African-American English. And we're going to talk, talk the talk uh, this morning, talking back, talking black, uh, when we're looking at African-American English. We have Dr. Lisa Green, who is a professor at the University of Massachusetts, and she is the founding director of the African-American language at UMass. Uh, Dr. Green, welcome. Thank you. Is, is, this, is this center uh, one of the earliest uh, of its kind? I, I actually think it's the first of its kind, uh, a center that really focuses on the study of African-American language varieties spoken in communities of African-Americans. Um, so the goal of the center is to serve as a clearinghouse for information on the linguistic variety and also to provide research experiences for undergraduates who may be interested in fields in linguistics or related fields uh, such as education. What, why, why is it necessary? Uh, why, why did it come into existence? Um, well, I think um, the variety African-American English or now African-American language ha has been discussed uh, for a number of years, but I think we keep going around in circles. When people started to talk about African-American English, I think it was out of necessity. Um, children who came from uh, predominantly African-American backgrounds, perhaps in the 60s, were entering schools that were integrated and were bringing with them the variety that they learned um, as native speakers. Um, and that was not the variety spoken in some of the schools. And so those children were deemed to have some type of cultural deficit um, or maybe even some speech disorder. 
So one of the goals of the center, though, is to make sure that African-American language is understood as a linguistic system with sentence structure, sound systems, even lexical kinds of patterns, patterns in words and vocabulary items. Um, and so that's one of the goals. And there are practical applications. So, for instance, if speech pathologists are trying to determine whether or not speakers have a disorder, then they need to understand the distinction between a disorder and speaking another linguistic variety. That may not be a standard variety, but that may nevertheless uh, be rule governed. Uh, Professor Green, I, I would love to have some clarification on this. I I'm familiar with the term, and it was certainly in, uh, in wide use uh, years ago. Are we talking about ebonics, or is this something different? It, it may very well be ebonics to some people. I mean, I don't use African-American English and African-American language and ebonics. I don't use those interchangeably, but some people do. I mean, ebonics was a term that was coined in the 1970s, and it was basically a term that really brought together uh, many, many varieties, languages that had some type of um, African language association. Um, African-American English, to many, may be a, a variety or a dialect of English, um, and the focus there may be on uh, sort of a English relationships. But some people use the terms interchangeably. I do not. For some people, we are definitely talking about the same thing. I mean, some people use Ebonics to refer to slang. Um, what I'm referring to is a language variety that children actually learn as native speakers. I mean, and slang itself is not a language. It basically focuses on um, words, particular phrases that come in and out, and that may be used by a particular um, group of speakers age uh, in a particular age range. So, you know, I'm sorry, I, I can't have a clear answer to that, but for some people, uh, when people talk about Ebonics, I think they actually may refer to African-American language, African-American English. You know, in in different parts of the country, uh, I guess regionalism, uh, there are certain accents or dialects. Are we looking at something that has more of a a universal or national um, implication, or yes. does it vary based on region? Well, uh, there, you know, and people, there's a myth that. African-American English is uniform across the United States. It's certainly the case that speakers of this linguistic variety will share patterns, but as someone who grew up in Southwest Louisiana, there are features in my particular variety that may not be in the variety of someone in California. By the same token, there will be significant overlap with perhaps some core features. So this is a variety that may be spoken by some, certainly not all African-Americans, um, but there will be some variations. I know this is uh, this might be putting you on the spot a little because it just occurred to me. Can you give us an example of of what the how the African American um, linguistic pattern might differ from mainstream um, what's called standard English pattern? Right. Yes, I can. So um, one of the properties of African-American English, and we can see this as children are developing it, is that there is considerable emphasis on not just the time of an event, whether or not the time of an event is past, 
with respect to the moment of utterance now or future, uh, that means it would refer to something that happens after now. Um, but after, there's emphasis on sort of what we refer to as um, aspect. So we can talk about not just whether or not an event is past or present, but how an event has actually been completed uh, as whether or not it's ongoing. So we can think in terms of events that happen generally or usually in general American English, one might say, oh, I usually sleep at two o'clock every day. So we use an adverbial like usual to indicate this habituality. In African-American English, the marker is be. So you can say, I be sleeping at two o'clock, which doesn't mean that I'm sleeping right now, but it has to refer to a pattern that's been established that occurs um, from time to time. And so, you know, when people hear something like that immediately, if you're a speaker of English, you're saying, oh my goodness, this person has not conjugated B and this is extremely problematic. Um, but it's not the tense marker is MR. It's the marker that tells us something about generality, habituality. And so it's never conjugated. It's always BE. But again, it's one of those markers that's stigmatized and it basically points to, oh, this is not a mainstream English speaker. So then we move immediately from something that's systematic to something that um, may signal for listeners that while this speaker is uneducated, this speaker occurs, uh, or this speaker is from a particular group of speakers. And so then we start to sort of, you know, um, entangle something about language and race. And then we move from talking about the linguistic patterns to um, a kind of race. So that's an example um, of, of how African-American English may differ, not just on the featural level, but more um, sort of on a structural level, as opposed to sort of just marking tense, then aspectual kinds of features are, are also marked. And so we could look at the whole system if we collected data on African-American English. We could see instances in which, yes, tense can be marked, but also instances in which, in which aspect, how an event is actually um, completed, whether or not it's ongoing, how that may also be marked. And so that's a clear distinction um, between the two. Dr. Green. Go ahead, Bill. Well, thank you, Jacqueline. Uh, Dr. Green, I would like to ask you this. We should note for our listeners just joining us that we are speaking with Dr. Lisa Green on this special edition of Black in the Valley. Dr. Green is a linguist uh, specializing in syntax and African-American English and is a professor of linguistics at UMass Amherst. By the way, in July 2020, she was awarded the title of Distinguished Professor. I'd like to know, Dr. Green, is there pushback uh, for uh, regularizing this kind of non-traditional uh, or this attempt or this incorporation of non-traditional English, uh, reminding me a lot of when they and theirs um, and them became more prevalent and people said, oh my God, the syntax is all out of whack if we just refer to people as they. Um, do you get pushback on this? Um, I generally, I guess I could go in environments in which I might get pushback and that's fine because I, I'm really clear though, my research is on the linguistic system, on the patterns, not really on attitudes. And people will have certain kinds of attitudes about language, um, whether or not it's becoming less pure, but the reality is that speakers are not sort of just waking up at 15 and beginning to speak this way. 
the reality is that some speakers, given the environment, may be native speakers of this variety. And so I'm interested in acquisition, how people actually learn language. So you're right. If I'm in certain contexts, you know, speak, people might say, well, if you talk like that, you can't get a job. If you talk like that, you're going to be ostracized. Um, so we should all speak something that's standard and mainstream. I'm sure people can talk to me in that way that I don't uh, really talk about attitudes, but you know, I know there's gotta be that kind of uh, pushback out there, but my research is, you know, pretty much on describing it as a system and people can take that information and apply it in different kinds of ways. But I think you're right. There are people who really think that um, when we talk about language, it should be one way um, and it should be something that's standard that, that may not offend uh, people who don't have these kinds of features in their uh, linguistic variety. We're going to take a quick break. Jacqueline, I don't mean to interrupt, but we've got to yeah. take a quick break. We'll be right back with more with Dr. Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks and, and the professor right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. Hear Howie at Broadside Books. Maybe you've read Howie's poems and reviews in Great River Review, Nimrod, Cutthroat, Off the Coast, or Nine Mile. Howie gets around. He jokes that he's an adjunct emeritus. He's taught creative writing at so many different colleges, a five-time Pushcart Prize nominee, lives in Florence, and volunteers at the Center for New Americans. At Broadside, Howie will read from his newly published volume of poetry, Stay. So go. Hear Howie Feierstein read from Stay this Wednesday at 7 at Broadside Books. When I was a kid, a bowl of cereal seemed incomplete unless it was topped with sliced bananas. 
and we knew where our bananas came from. They came from Chiquita. Our pineapples came from Dole, and our oranges came from Sunkist. We didn't think much about it, but we do now. We want food that hasn't spent a lot of time on a truck or in a processing plant. Around here, it's hard to miss the Local Hero label. Local Hero makes it quick and easy to identify food raised right here in Western Mass. Local Hero is part of CESA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. And Local Hero is just one of the things that CESA does to help Western Mass farms thrive. CESA helps build a strong local food system, working with farmers, stores, restaurants, so all of us have fresh Fresh local food choices. Look for the bright yellow Local Hero label and think about becoming a CESA supporter. Go to buylocalfood.org, find out what CESA does and why it's worth supporting. And bon appetit. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our Black in the Valley segment with the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks and Dr. Lisa Green, who is a linguist in the Department of Linguistics at UMass Amherst. The microphone is back to you, Jacqueline. Uh, yes, thanks, Bill. Dr. Green, you've been trying to get the word out about um, the linguistic differences, and I think you've been working with teachers over the years. Could you tell us about this uh, program that you have for teachers? Yeah, so in some summers, uh, we bring undergraduate students to UMass and give them research experiences um, in linguistics, in particular, um, looking at data from African-American English-speaking communities. But in some sun summers, we've also brought together teachers um, who are interested in learning more about the linguistic variety for practical application in the classroom. And this summer, we, in, co um, in conjunction with the Linguistic Institute, uh, the Linguistic Society of America Institute at UMass, there will also be um, a workshop for teachers and speech pathologists who are interested in learning more about this linguistic variety um, and how it might apply to their own practical work in their fields in speech pathology and in the classroom. It seems to come at quite a time when we're dealing with uh, critical race theory, we're eliminating uh, diversity in its many forms from the school and restricting access to it. Um, do you, how, how do teachers who are interested and do they have to be in the classroom in order to participate in this workshop um we we uh you know they don't have to be in the classroom um but they definitely have to you know have some questions about education and language and the connection between the two i mean and you're right this whole notion just just like the uh, question buzz asked about language and thought thought and language that goes way way back um this whole notion of critical race theory and language i think it's an old question too um, especially given the relationships between social factors um, and language used. Um, so the, the relationship between, you know, what language you use in the so-called marketplace, I think those are really old issues. And I think people, in, um, including educators, are interested in, in learning more about that. But I think these are really old kinds of issues that just may have different um, terms associated with them. I think your work is absolutely 
well-timed um, and getting the word out to people in the community so that they can be better prepared because there are some alternatives being prepared in the community uh, in response to the prohibitions against teaching diversity uh, or teaching in ways that amplify diversity. Um, this, this is an old, this is an old uh, concept, and I think that it is also a very well-timed, very well-timed. Is there anything else you'd like to have the audience know about the work that's going on at the center? Um, it just, you know, it, it definitely is a work that is rooted in research, but it's really clear that this work has practical applications in the classroom um, and, and way beyond that. Well, we thank you so very, very much. Thank you so very, very much. And we are glad that you started it, and we hope that you keep on keeping on with it. Thank you so much. So nice to talk with you. We should note that Professor Green is indeed the founding director of the Center for the Study of African American Language at UMass Amherst, as well as a professor in the linguistics department. We appreciate your time so very much. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, thank you for bringing Professor Green on the show with us. And I can't wait to continue the discussion you and I were having about the word lady, which will continue in future shows. We'll be right back. Yes. On your baby girl's neck When it's cold outside And you both forget your jackets It never changes Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating But hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut Your local river needs you Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And uh, we are really pleased today. We have a very special guest uh, for the first uh, segment of our show. Uh, she is a nurse practitioner, Kathy Service. She's a facilitator of monthly sessions for becoming a dementia friend. Uh, you could read about this if you're a subscriber to Northampton Friends, she also, Kathy Service, you are you work for the Department of Developmental Services. Correct. You are a nurse practitioner who is part of the uh, National Task Group on Intellectual Disabilities and Dementia Practices. You're on the Medical Advisory Group. Correct. And that's part of the Clinical Health Committee of the National Task Group. So um, you've been working with dementia, and could you tell us 
What is Dementia Friends? Okay, Dementia Friends is really part of a global mu movement, and it started in Japan, and, um, and it spread over to the UK, and the UK, they're very, very involved with it. But Dementia Friends is just a way of educating, creating some public awareness, and, um, and figuring out how we can um, support people who are living, and remember, I'm using the term living with dementia, not, um, and um, in their own communities. So, because people are afraid, what do I say? What do I do? How do I react? And it's just a way to kind of give them some pointers about how to communicate and be with the person who is living with dementia. Well, how does Dementia Friends do that outreach? Well, it's really easy, actually. It's a very simple program that they're, um, it's right now in Massachusetts, um, the Massachusetts Dementia Friends USA, and has kind of, it's like a franchise, I hate to say, but um, they have um, given the license to Jewish Family and Children's Services out of Waltham, and they're um, through Beth Salzberg, she's a social worker who kind of orchestrates and manages the Dementia Friends Program for Massachusetts. And basically what it is, is that they teach people to be champions, so they call us champions, on how to do a real basic training. There's a, a set group of slides and, and and PowerPoints, et cetera, on telling people, explaining, first of all, a few things about what is dementia, and then, and then it goes into um, what it does to the brain and why we act the way we act, and then how to communicate. And it's continuing, what I think is important about it, that it makes a connection. You know, we all live in, um, you know, community, and it's really important for that social connection because um, that is, is essential for people who continue to live, and people live for years with dementia. So, Kathy Service, go back for a minute. Yeah. What is dementia, and is it different? Is it a subset of Alzheimer's? Well, okay. Well, good or question. Or the other way around. Okay. No, dementia is an umbrella term, and this is what all the experts say. It's almost like this, and it, it, what dementia is is a brain, a brain damage or disease, and it um, happens after you finish developing, after the age of 22, because before that time it would be an intellectual or developmental disability. And um, it happens, um, and it can happen for a number of reasons. Um, certain diseases, Alzheimer's disease is the most um, prevalent form of dementia. You've heard of Lewy body dementia, frontal temporal dementia, Bruce Willis's de dementia that we've heard a lot about lately. Uh, cerebral va um, vascular dementia, even things like chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I just read a, um, an article about how the football soccer players are now de I mean, developing dementia, especially those people who use their head a lot with a ball. So um, it's brain damage. That's what it is. And because of the, um, it just depends on what's going on, what the cause of the, the disease or condition is, and, and what we see outwardly is directly proportional, directly related to where the damage is in the brain. Well, people of a certain age find this in particularly uh, uh, frightening. And I'm wondering a couple of things in that mm -hmm. regard, since you are expert in this. I understand you, you want to talk more about uh, how to help people and yes. families who have family members that are suffering with dementia. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to know what your position is with regard to people being tested to see if oh, they are likely likely to develop dementia and or if there are ways that 
we can mm. stave this off. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, you could get tested. There's APOE. There's certain genes that may, may indicate that you might be at a higher risk for developing dis- dementia, but not necessarily so. But the great thing is that more recently, there's a lot of work being done on risk factors. In fact, um, tomorrow I'm going to be speaking at the Senior Center about brain health. That's At what time? At noontime. Northampton Senior Northampton Center. Senior Center, and that's through the Alzheimer's Association with whom I volunteer a lot. And there are so many things that you can do um, throughout your lifespan to try to either mitigate or um, even maybe hopefully prevent, but we don't know yet. But there's so much that we can do right now. There are what I call... Um, the six um, the pillars of health, the AARP has that, and I'm working on a, um, a grant through the CDC Healthy Brain Initiative. They're work, they've given some money to different places, and they look at brain health. And it's a really big buzzword in terms of um, brain health is really what, where it's at. What's good for your heart is good for your health. So all those things that we nurses have nagged you about for many years, you know, moving, exercise, nutrition, good nutrition, um, sleep, things like um, keeping your mind active, keeping your socialization, and even things like medical issues or healthcare-related issues like keeping your, getting your blood pressure checked, watching your, you know, for diabetes, blood sugars, and getting vaccinated. All of those things have an impact on, on um, your physical health. And in fact, there was a great um, schematic in Lancet Neurology in 2020 and it goes along the lifespan and what happens, what you can do to make a difference. Even hearing loss can, be, can contribute to the development of dementia. So how we take care of ourselves throughout our lives. And even when you're living with dementia, and that's the other thing that um, I think is really key. Dementia, the word, is so stigmatizing. I mean, I think it's the most feared word in my generation. And, um, and then, um, so how do we, and so many people will be getting it because age is the biggest risk factor for the development of dementia. So it's really important for us to understand what does this mean and then how we support each other. Um, it's, it's so fascinating. We're speaking with Kathy Service of the Department of Developmental Services and the National Task Group on Intellectual Disabilities and Dementia Practices. I want to circle back to dementia mm-hmm. friends. You were okay. just talking to all of us, each okay. of us, yeah. about how we could best avoid yeah. uh, dementia. But Dementia Friends, is, is the information you're disseminating, is that intended for the family of a victim or for friends of a victim yeah. or the victim well, himself? you know, I think it's hard. You use even wording, you know. And one of the things that I'm really conscious of, and it has to do with, you know, how we speak about things, is I always say that people are living with dementia. And, you know, even though we talk about suffering and burdens and victims and things like that, that already kind of puts an, um, a sort of a spin on who the person is as you either may become apathetic or, or, you know, think about it as being a, a burden. In it. And it's not like we don't have, um, you know, it can be challenging, and, it, and it, it is what it is. My mother had was living with dementia. She probably had a mixed dementia. There, there you go, probably vascular and Alzheimer's disease, so I helped provide care for her. And um, so... I think it's really important that we, we understand how we can kind of support people when they're living with dementia. I mean, people can live up to, you know, 10, 15 years, I mean, depending on when they get, um, they get diagnosed. And also, um, we're looking at a lot more now in terms of biomarkers, and that's a hot topic in the headline. 
Can you talk to us about quality of life for people uh, who are suffering dementia? For people who are living with dementia? Yes. I mean, well, the quality of life is that I always tell people, you know, you look at a lifespan and a life history, life story, and it's really important that we know who the person is, the essence of the person who is living with dementia. And part of it is is that, um, you know, trying to find out what's important to this person, what things they used to like to do, because as we get, as, as the disease or as whatever is the damage going on the brain increases, is that we tend to kind of go back a little bit more in time. You know, it erodes more recent memories, and we kind of go back. So finding out about who this person is and, and uh, what was valuable to them um, is really important. And also how to communicate with people, and that's essential because I always say to people is that the connections aren't there in your brain, okay, Be and because of the damage. And what we, the connections, we have to do it externally with each other. So how we connect to people. And sometimes it's not easy. I'll use myself as an example. I'm kind of hyper, as you some people may know. I've read about that, Kathy. <laughs> Nervous I want you to services, know. <laughs> Bob Silman calls me. So I really have to put on an Academy Award performance and and be with the person. You know, years ago, uh, I even talked about this at a conference for the net was before the NTG came about in Seattle about somebody in uh, was in uh, Denmark, and I was telling talking to her about. Dementia. We're so into doing, 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 doing. We multitask, et cetera. And with, when you're working with people and supporting people who are living with dementia, it's about human being. Being with is important. And we don't put as much value with that. So what I have to do when I see, when, if, when meeting somebody, okay, pause for the cause. Settle down a little bit. Get in the moment. Be present. And that's the other thing. You really have to be in the moment. There's no... I mean, the past will only try to inform you about the person, who the person is, the es essence of the person, and be with them right now. Well, just stay there with mm -hmm. for one more second, if you would, please, Kathy. We're talking in the area of quality of life. Yeah. Are you saying that persons with dementia, uh, who are living with dementia, yeah. uh, can, in fact, have a high quality of life, particularly when they are experiencing things that were meaningful to them yeah. years ago? I, yeah, I think that's, that's the key. I, I think, you know, trying to figure these things out with people and finding things out. You know, uh, for instance, one of the things I, I'm, I laugh because, you know, I grew up on a farm in Hadley, and I, I said, well, you know, I'm going to do my advanced dire directive because I have a sense, you know, I'm, I'm, I probably will develop dementia as I get older, maybe. Because, and, because it's hereditary? Well, not necessarily. I mean, I actually had my, my APOEs done, and I have an average risk. What just, does that stand for? Um, oh, gosh, uh, now. Or, or, oh, or, what, God, it, or what is it? We don't it's, 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 a, it's a genetic ma marker for dementia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, gosh. I, I have to look that one up. I forgot what it means, but uh, I'm a little nervous here, so I can't remember off the top of my head. But anyway, so part of it is is that what makes me happy is being out, like when I was used to run and take walks out in the meadows, is being there, smelling dirt, hearing the sound of the wind on the, um, the corn, dried corn stalks, hearing red-winged blackbirds, things like that. And, and I think about, wow, gosh, you know, if I have, if I have a little bit of behavior um, um, distress, and again, using behaviors or even wording matters, is that, um, um, 
you know, it's having something like that. Forget Haldol. You know, I mean, we're all into giving people medications, and I can understand that because sometimes caregiving can be exhausting when, you, when you're supporting somebody who's living with dementia. And, um, you know, take me out to the farm field, you know. I wish they could, um, smelling hay, I love the smell of hay, so I wish I could have something, you know, in a package of hay when I'm, not, you know, or music. You know, one of the things that I tell people is get your playlist together. You know, for people who are living with dementia, music has, is so powerful and reaches a different part almost like of the brain. So, you know, getting the ballads, getting what songs are meaningful to you and having that available to people, developing your, your life story, even things as minor as, you know, I, my, my mother hated ice in her water. So, you know, if somebody gives you ice in your water and, and you know, you could, it would just... You know, she'd get really upset about that, but she couldn't articulate why or what that was about. Well, so that, that leads to my question, mm-hmm. Kathy Service, which is uh, we've, we often heard, and I've experienced, mm-hmm. uh, people who are living with dementia, they, uh, they can't remember what they had for breakfast right. today, but they remember what they were served for lunch mm-hmm. in fifth mm-hmm. grade. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, it's because those part of our, you know, those memories are stored, you know, differently and it really depends upon when you're um, when you're experiencing something now it depends on what's going on at the time how are you go- where what file are you going to put it in your brain your brain's like this huge file cabinet so if you're multitasking or you're not paying attention the other thing I remind people is that um, if they're if you can't hear if you're in pain you know if somebody if you tell somebody something and their arthritis is killing them they can't tell you you know, they're not going to remember things. So it really depends on, and um, what what's that about? But that, uh, but we file things differently in our brain. So we have those old memories filed, and we tend to, you know, they're, they're there, and they're much more easier to find in our brains, I think, in a way. Uh, this is a fascinating conversation with nurse practitioner and dementia expert, Kathy Service. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk more about dementia friends right after this. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well with 
without unnecessary risk? Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. Looking for a fun and competitive day out with friends or the office team? The Junior Achievement Annual Golf Tournament is on Friday, June 9th at Crump and Fox in Bernardston. The day will include many contests, giveaways, food, and more. Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts helps prepare young people for real-world career and financial success through in-school and after-school programs focused on financial literacy, career exploration, and entrepreneurship. To register, visit jawm.org. Did you know that veterans make up about one-third of America's adult homeless population? Only 3.9 cents of each income tax dollar last year went to veterans' benefits. Ever wonder about where your tax money goes? More information on how your tax money is being spent can be found at nationalpriorities.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with nurse practitioner Kathy Service, a dementia expert who also is facilitating monthly sessions for becoming a dementia friend. I, I guess I just have to okay. ask this question, mm-hmm. Kathy, which is okay. um, I, I'm aging. Correct. And I'm noticing that sometimes I can't remember a name. I can't remember. I can't grab a word. My vocabulary is not uh, as readily available mm-hmm. to me as it once was. Am I suffering the early onset? Not necessarily. What happens uh, to our brains as we get older is that the speed of recall for information is delayed. Okay? And our brain is just like other parts of our body. So things just don't work quite as easy as they used to. So, for instance, if you're, you know, you're looking for a word, especially names are really hard. And, I, you know, if I'm just going to use the analogy of a file cabinet. So, all righty. So you see somebody and you're like, oh, I know that person. And it's really bad if you feel like you have to introduce them to somebody. So, um, you know, you're going back in your mind. It's like, oh, God, I know. I mean, I remember them from blah, blah, blah. So you're going back in all these files in your mind. And, you know, it becomes to a point because of the time lapse between the files. Plus, if you're nervous about winning, when you have to remember a name, you know, by that point, you know, the time has passed and stuff like that, and it's, it's just like, oh, forget it. But I think we're so hypersensitive about um, dementia that we automatically think that this is, um, you know, oh, it's the beginning of dementia. I know it. I mean, there's the French have a tombeau de filet. I think it's, a, it's falling through the nets. It's like you're going... You know, or changing, you go down cellar for something, and it's like, what did I come down here for? And you, and I go back up to the scene of the crime, and you remember it. But you know, it's like, especially when you're an expert, I'm like, oh, I know all this happens. This is, I'm the expert. So it's that's normal changes of aging. I think you would remember, and if you're stressed out, um, you're you're going to get. It's harder to find that file, and inevitably at night when you're not stressed, you'll remember the name. You have a question, John Newman. Well, yes. Mm-hmm. Actually, a comment. I have a yeah. friend 
who is in a studio, beautiful studio apartment uh-huh. over at Eastworks Building. He said, uh-huh. I love my studio apartment because I never walk into this room and say, why did I come in here? Which is a frequent, oh which happens happens frequently. That happens to me, Buzz. Oh. I, I, I oh, went go to get something and say, "Why did I come in here? What was on my no, mind?" No, it's it's a, it's real. No, you're right. That's a normal change of aging. But I think the other thing is that we also, in other ways, we we figured out strategies. In fact, there's there's trainings about how to you know improve your memory, blah blah blah. And we have we develop little strategies like you know when I had to remember something to bring to work, you know you you know we write notes. Okay, so you know so where did I you know I put the note different places. A lot of good that does. So routine is really important in terms of keeping us on track. So where did I put my note? I put it on the toilet seat because I know that morning <laughs> I'm going to go into the bathroom. I'll see that note. But, you know, you figure out these strategies that work for us. So I think that's not, that, uh, that's not dementia. That's figuring out normal changes of aging and how we, we do things. It's like when we get up, you know, not to run or something like that. And uh, so I think we, it's, we have to It's seriously it comforting to mm. hear that. But, Bill, I know you have something to say. I just mm. want to say my wife and I, uh, Marcin and I, mm. have been... We always have a jigsaw puzzle going Perfect. for the last six months, and we do Wordle and Quartle good, every good. day. But uh, what I just keep noticing is I'll look at a space, and I'll say, oh, i got to find the piece for that on the on the jigsaw puzzle. And then I go, and I'll find the piece and go, where is this supposed to go? Oh, my gosh. That keeps happening to me more and more, and it makes me a little nervous because I've always been quite good at that. Well, you know, nimbleness does, Yeah, I, I mean, we it does go away. I'd like to think about it when you work with people uh, with um, aging, people who are getting older. There's this term I learned from a geriatrician um, that through the, you know, that working with people with intellectual disabilities called homeostenosis. And what homeostenosis is, is the resiliency, that bounce backness. When you get older, it's a stenose meaning hardened. It's not as flexible. So it takes you a lot longer to bounce back. It takes you a lot longer to, um, to um, if you get up, you know, or, or, you know, having people around you in terms of getting back to remembering things, et cetera. So it's, it's the speed. We're not fast anymore, I hate to say. Well, I know Bill has something to say or ask, but I just wanted to ask you, for Dementia Friends, if yes. people are interested in joining Dementia Friends, how do they do it? Well, there are a number of sessions, and there are a lot of people doing sessions around. And you don't have to be a, quote, trained professional to be a champion trainer. The, the I know in Huntington, there's the COA director there and somebody else do it pretty regularly. There are a number of Dementia Friends sessions. You can go online to Dementia Friends Massachusetts, and you can find a session. And Northampton Neighbors, we um, are doing Dementia Friends sessions. We try to do them on a monthly basis. Um, and um, and um, so we, we were supposed to have one scheduled for tomorrow, but get this, I forgot. I unfortunately... I did not. I overbooked myself and didn't write down another session I'm doing on brain health. So um, we'll have to reschedule that dementia friends um, uh, training. But we do it regularly through, and part of it has to do with making Northampton a dementia friendly community and making people who are living with dementia feel a little bit more at ease when they're living with dementia. Kathy Service, I'd like to backtrack on mm-hmm. one aspect of this conversation we've been having, and. I would like to know is this, in addition to being able to test to see if you have this genetic marker, this mm-hmm. APOE, which mm-hmm. makes you more likely to, mm-hmm. to, to develop dementia, right. are there tests to take in addition to 
uh, genetic testing to see if you are beginning to, uh, if you have dementia or have the beginnings of dementia? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I, I always ask people where people are worried about um, developing dementia. First of all, there are many, many conditions that may mimic dementia, and they are correctable. They can be ameliorated. So, for instance, B12 deficiencies, hypothyroidism, depression, um, you know, uh, medications. People are on certain meds. They can cause some confusion. But if you are worried about having or maybe developing dementia, you need to get checked out by somebody. It's like a simple blood test and stuff. There's a, a lot of work being done. In fact, I'm going to the American Academy of Neurology. There's a session at the end of April, and we're having, um, this is through the National Task Group. We're looking at biomarkers, and that, I can't really address all of this um, intellectually and with, with making sense here, but there are a number of work being done on certain biomarkers. For instance, um, uh, the amyloid, you know, the presence of amyloid, and those are those grease balls in our brains that um, are connected with Alzheimer's disease and um, tau plaques, et cetera, and tau um, fibrillary tangles. So they're, they're looking at, um, right now, they're going to be able to test um, spinal um, fluid and PET special PET scans in terms of, do you have this? And the reason that they're looking at some of this stuff is that there, there are medications now that they're developing that they have developed that are in, 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 uh, um, are being tested that destroy the amyloid. And if you take it early enough, you might be able to um, slow down the process of, of Alzheimer's disease. It doesn't work on all, uh, you know, because it's just it's amyloid and um, it has to do with bursting those um, grease balls in your brain. So it's, it's, just, on, it's yeah. just for Alzheimer's disease. I'd like to ask, we, we, we have to run, but I really would mm. love to ask you this because I think we've all been exposed to these ads oh, for Previt. No. Yeah, don't, don't. It's a waste of money. Uh, thank you for <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, we know the best things you can do for yourselves. Okay, move, 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 move. And we know that the finger study talk about the more you move, the better it is for your brain. Also, eating decently, being with friends, listening to music, um, you know, being active mentally, you know, sleeping well, figuring out how you can sleep. You know, there's so all that stuff. You know, in fact, I just I heard somebody talk the other day how that Nareva or whatever it is just been sued for making false claims. Uh, so I think those things don't work. You know, you, there's other things that work, but just make take a lot of time and a little bit more effort. I hate to say that was an important question, an important yeah. answer for me to hear for sure. We've been talking with Kathy Service. I'm really so grateful, not just for you being here today but for the work you're doing. It yeah. is Dementia Friends, and if you want to find out more about it, last word, Kathy. Oh, we can go to Northampton Neighbors, but Dementia Friends, Google it, and you can go at Dementia Friends, Massachusetts. Beth has all the listing of if people list, their, there's virtual trainings, there are in-person trainings, but it's, it's really basic, and they teach help people to understand how to communicate and be with a person who is living with dementia and making them feel at ease and making yourself feel at ease because they can sense uh, our emotions, you know, that part of our brain that governs our emotion, the, the amygdala is intact until probably the very end of the disease. That's what community is all about. Exactly. We're all here for each other and with each other at Dementia Friends. Thank you, Kathy Service. You're welcome, bud. We're going to be yeah. right back with Writer's Block. And don't forget to come back soon. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Tonight, the East Hampton School Committee will meet again to discuss the status of the former superintendent candidate, Vito Perone. The East Hampton School Committee has received national attention after rescinding their offer to Perone to become the district's next superintendent. Originally, news outlets reported that it was because Perone addressed two female school committee members as ladies in an email. But it has since been revealed that in that email, Perone had requested around 14 weeks of pay time off per year. With several committee members on the fence about offering Perone the job in the first place, the request pushed the school to rescind the offer. Tonight's meeting will be held on Zoom and begins at 6 p.m. The former principal of Northampton High School, who left after referring to a group of students in a derogatory manner in an email, was the highest paid employee in Northampton last year. Mass Live reports that Lori Valiancourt received an $80,000 settlement from the school to leave her job last year bringing her total pay to $195,430. Valian Court signed the separation agreement with the school district on October 14th, about seven months after she was placed on leave. The Amherst Pelham Regional School Committee has reached a tentative agreement with the union representing administrators in the Amherst and Pelham Public Schools. The deal is pending ratification later this month by the union membership and school committee. The agreement comes as negotiations continue between the school committee and the Education Association, which represents teachers, paraeducators, and clerical staff. The school committee and teachers union return to in-person talks at the middle school tomorrow. For today, look for lots of sunshine. It'll be milder, high 62 to 66. Tonight, mostly clear, overnight lows 34 to 38. And the outlook for Tuesday, sunshine and clouds breezy and mild, highs in the low 70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues, our demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. At Greenfield Cooperative Bank, it pays to get pre-approved. If you're looking to buy a home, right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th, be a new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. 
And we are back. This is uh, our weekly wonderful segment with Megan Zinn, Writer's Block. Hi, Megan. Hi, how are you? Good. What do we have we in have, store today? We have Joan Grenier, the owner of Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley with us today. Welcome, Joan. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Wonderful. And and the Odyssey Bookshop is having a big year this year. Tell us we why. We are. Um, we're celebrating our 60th anniversary. Fantastic. It's mostly this fall, but mm-hmm. we're starting to, to build for it. And, um, you know, if you want, I can tell a little bit of the history. Yeah, I was going to ask not you that. It's, 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 but it's an interesting history. So tell us it a little is. bit about it. Well, my father started the store um, in 1963. And going back a little bit, my father was a French-Canadian immigrant to this country uh, 100 years ago in, mm-hmm. in 23. Mm-hmm. He was 13. He would eventually be the oldest of 10 kids. They came to Hoyoke. My grandmother was at Derby Line um, in Vermont in 1923 with seven kids and $7, and they weren't going to let her in. But her brother had taken her to the train station, and he gave her another 10 bucks and mm-hmm. signed a letter that he'd be... Uh, responsible for them. My grandfather was already here. Mm -hmm. So um, my father really didn't have a lot of formal education. He did become a pharmacist in the 1930s. His name is is Romeo, I think. Romeo, Mm -hmm. yes. Grenier. And um, so eventually he became a pharmacist. He was in the Navy in World War II. um, But he was always... Spending like uh, he would buy a book a week back yeah. in the 30s and 40s, that's a, that's an and then um, and the, and the Odyssey was in fact part of a drugstore. Yeah, the bookstore part. Yes. Well, the the drugstore he owned in South Hadley, which was Glessman's, although affectionately known as Glessie's, um, he brought in 500 Penguin titles, mm-hmm. and um, then in 1963, the college asked him, Mount Holyoke College asked him to open a bookstore, so they they built a building. And um, for many years, he went back and forth. Mm-hmm. A prescription needed to be <laughs> filled. Um, and, uh, you know, and the, and the store grew, and it was... Um, but then we'll fast forward a little bit, because in 1985... So we've had two fires, yeah. one, two floods, one <laughs> pandemic, and one and several near... Very biblical. Bankruptcies, yes. Yeah. So in 1985, I was taking my GREs at UMass Amherst, and um, somebody was waiting for me outside the room. So I thought, you know, my father was 75 at that point, um, which seemed very old, although it doesn't anymore. Uh, and um, they said, everybody's okay, but the store is, is burnt down. And... Um, so I, and we didn't want you to drive into South Hadley and see the store on fire. So um, everybody rallied behind us, and um, we were in a small space um, that had recently um, was a small retail space that was recently emptied. And, of course, this is before computers. Yeah. So inventory is all cards mm-hmm. in the books. So you, you write out the title and publisher, et cetera. So we had a lot of volunteers helping with the, that. We had the college carpenters come over and build us shelves. And um, so we, we kind of got through that, those first few months. Mm-hmm. Um, fast forward six months, mm-hmm. May of 86, my father calls me in the middle of the night and tells me this odyssey is burning. I tell him to go back to bed. He's having a bad dream. He says, no, I'm here. 
and um, both times was arson. Oh, I did not know that. Son of the chief of detectives. Um, you know, he they used to call them pyromaniacs. They mm-hmm. now call them fire starters. Yeah, yeah. And so at that point, <laughs> there was the whole center South Hadley had burnt, and um, the uh, co- first congregational church across the street allowed us to be in their um, mm-hmm. church hall. Oh, nice. And then the first building of the Village Commons was built, and we moved into that. Yeah, and that's where you are. No. Oh. <laughs> you're, well, you're in the Village Commons. We're Sounds the like there's at least a building. There's another story. This is the flood. Well, no, we we did we did move in 1991 to a bigger okay, space yeah. that had an elevator and everything. I just have to circle back, Joan Grenier. What was your what were you going for? And when you took those GREs, history. what were your ma- history? Yeah. And when did you actually join the family business as a participant in it? Well, I had worked as a teenager, and I had worked um, any time I wasn't traveling around the world. I would come back and work. Yeah. Uh, and at that point, I was working part-time and going to school. But did, I, did I had your, said— Joan, I, did your love of books bring you to the bookstore, or did the bookstore give you a love of books? Well, I think it did, although until the fires, I said I would never— <laughs> take over the bookstore and after the second fire when my dad said I don't think I can do it again if you want the insurance money you can start again but I'm not sure I'm giving you anything but headaches and um, of course that was partially true so I said I would do it for a little while and um, a while 60 years later well no that was 1980s 40 40 something (laughs) almost 40 years later yeah I'm just Um, saying 60 years later it's still thriving it's It's pretty thriving um, and with Joan, Joan Grenier, Grenier uh, the owner of Odyssey Bookshop. And you've got a, um, a really robust um, events schedule at, um, at, at the Odyssey Bookshop. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, how that works and who you've had in and who you've got coming? Well, uh, we've had probably over 1,000 yes, authors yes, over yes. the years. Um, how it works is that the publishers set up uh, what's called event grids. They're mm-hmm. digital. So, like, we just filled out event grids for Penguin Random House and Viking for the fall, requesting authors. Okay. We probably get about 15% of the mm. authors we request. Oh, okay. Then we also have local authors or mm-hmm. people who used to live in the area or people who know us yeah. who want to come. And so we do about three events, sometimes four a week, depending. And, of course, during... COVID. I mean, we didn't mm-hmm. get to COVID yet, but right. <laughs> that was virtual, which was, you know, we had to learn that technology, yeah. but also it didn't sell books really. You oh, know, yeah, I mean, people around the country would be saying, oh, this is a great event, but but uh, they're not there to, to grab the book and get yeah. it signed and to and to do that. Um, and you've got um, some um, next week, um, you've got uh, Tracy Kidder. Tracy Kidder's coming. New book is. Um, Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People. Um, That'll be exciting. And Jess Rowe um, next week. Yeah, the Uh, fiction writer. Yeah, The New Earth. And Rachel Beanland. Another um, fiction writer. Another fiction writer. The House is on Fire. So that's just, and that's just one week. Yes. Um, So yes, very, very robust. Um, Yeah, well, we're going to come back. We're going to be talking about what's upcoming at the incredible... Uh, Odyssey. It is just such a resource for this area, and we're so glad that it's going to be celebrating its 60th anniversary this fall. Uh, We're going to be taking a break. Be right back.
for Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Meltdown, the annual spring music and book bash for kids and their grown-ups. Brought to you by The River and Mass General Brigham's Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Saturday, April 22nd, Meltdown is at Hawks and Reed in downtown Greenfield for a day of free family fun. 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. rain or shine. Live music and authors on the Hawks and Reed main stage with Carrie Ferguson and the Grumpy Town Club Band, the Deedle Deedle Dees, and Puppets with Tom Knight, along with great local authors like Sue Fuller, Ty Allen Jackson, and Mira Bartok. Outside on Court Square, the amazing acrobatics of the Show City Circus, Birds of Prey with Tom Riccardi, adorable dogs from Heroes Boarding and Training, and enjoy great local food from Cocina Lupita, Holyoke and Bart's ice cream. Meltdown, brought to you with the support of Mass General Brigham's Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Saturday, April 22nd, inside and outside Hawks and Reed in downtown Greenfield. It's rain or shine, and it's free. See you there. For 50 years, the Center for Women and Community has provided trauma-informed leadership and advocacy services, including 24-hour free and confidential support for survivors and their loved ones throughout Hampshire County. April is National Sexual Assault Awareness Month. CWC is here for you. If you've been impacted by violence, call the Sexual Assault Support and Advocacy Hotline for information, support, and resources. Learn about volunteer and professional staff opportunities at umass.edu slash CWC. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Writer's Block with Megan Zinn and a very special guest celebrating a very special anniversary. anniversary. Yeah, we're here with Joan Grenier from Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley, who are celebrating their 60th anniversary this year. What's the website? Um, what's your website? It's you odysseybks.com. That's easy to remember. There's three Odyssey bookstores in the country, and one of them got Odyssey books for, oh, before we did no. many years ago. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Um, but um, so are you guys, besides your, your um, 
all your events, you do have some interesting programs as well that I wanted to ask about. Um, so you've got something called the Signed First Edition Club. What's that all about? Well, that's once a uh, once a month. Um, we choose uh, generally a novel uh, based on literary merit and mm-hmm. collectability. And we have about 200 members in this club, um, many, overwhelmingly, not not in Western Mass. Okay. So we get the book signed. We put a Mylar protective jacket on it. We brown paper wrap it, and you know, and it, it gets sent out to all these people. Interesting. Did you have you ever called any books like uh, books that? Um, oh yes. That, that became huge. That, yes. that you kind of called yes. early. If you look at the page on the website, yeah. there's you know National Book Award winners, National Book Critic Circle Award winners, um, finalists for yeah. a lot of these prizes, and. And Booker Prizes. Yeah, so you have a sense of um, what book is going to blow up or, yes. or really just... Um, well, we usually read like three or four months in advance. Mm-hmm. Yep, you know, we have what are called galleys yes, or yep, advanced yep. readers' copies. Um, yeah. And sometimes, you know, we get the people that we want, <clears throat> excuse me, and sometimes it, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can imagine the books. The book business is complicated that way. Bill, you had a question. What I think, find extraordinary is the authors you get. Yeah. I mean, this is not New York City or Boston, and they come to South Hadley, mm-hmm. Massachusetts, in significant measure. I think, Joan, because it's your bookstore. Well, <clears throat> you know, I have an amazing staff, and I've had an amazing staff for decades now. Um, the first edition club. I think it's 20 years old now mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, we started with Richard Russo's Empire Falls. Oh, love that book. Which did win. One of my favorites. The Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. And um, I wish I had the date right here, but Richard is coming back in August. Oh, he is? Okay. I'm for his, that. For his new book. And um, yes, it's it's helped to raise our profile a lot. But we've been doing events for a long time. We you know we partner with a lot of different organizations, mm-hmm. Mount Holyoke College, um, other schools, other universities and colleges. Yeah, um, and I imagine once you establish a good reputation with the publishers, they know to, that it's a good place to send writers as well. They do, although COVID has changed. They're not sending out as yeah, many they're, writers. They're doing more Zoom kinds doing, of things. Like when we have uh, Dennis Lehane, mm-hmm. Um, that's with other stores. It's virtual. I mean, Dennis yeah. always came to the store. That's the second place he ever read for his first novel was the Odyssey. Oh, that's but he's also out in California these days, not <laughs> not in the Massachusetts. That's true. Um, and you also have you're doing a spring <clears throat> writing contest that you do each year, and that's taking place right now, correct? It is. And um, Lore, who's our children's um, coordinator, is working on that, and we should have some. And I think she's tied it into our 60th anniversary okay. or into a bookstore somehow. And um, we'll, we'll, uh, we're looking forward to hearing and seeing what the kids write. Yeah, I bet. Um, I guess this we Jim- also have a gift of reading, which is mm-hmm. um, for oh, kids. Mm-hmm. It's similar to the uh, first edition club. Oh, interesting. And okay. um, we find out, you know, a lot of times it's grandparents mm-hmm. or aunts and uncles. who yeah. It's a book a month for kids. Oh, that's and beautiful. Um, Laura picks out, you know, according to the age group. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think we have about 60, 65 kids in that. I mean, we are in South Hadley. It's not Northampton or Amherst. <laughs> you know, it's a smaller I think you do town. An amazing job. Um, um, so and we have to do all no these different things. Right. We you need to do a lot to kind of get the people in and, and, and paying attention. Um, so, so Joan Grenier, um, Odyssey Books, tell us um, what you've been reading or what you're excited about, what books are doing well right now. 
Well, since I just finished it yesterday, mm-hmm. and it's 700 pages, and I know you spoke with John Sales, yes. um, and he did come to the store, uh, his new book, Jamie McGillaray, The Re- the Renegade's Journey, is just an amazing, amazing book. Yeah. Uh, John Sales, as many people know, is the film filmmaker and um, actor and done some terrific movies over the years. But this is, um, I think it's about a 13-year span mm-hmm. yep. from the Battle of Culloden in... Um, 1745. Yeah. Through the French and... In- what we call the French yeah, and Indian yeah. War. Um, and it's just amazing yeah. how detailed it is about... I mean, there's a lot about battles, which I'm not always that interested <laughs> in, but because they're very bloody. I mean, they people... Are. Particularly then. Uh, no no uh, Geneva Accords. Right, exactly. <laughs> you're down, you're going to also be shot, too. Yes. Um, and the prisons uh, in London that uh, mm-hmm. Jamie's taken to. Um, really brutal. Brutal. Um, apparently, Charles Dickinson's father was in the mm-hmm. same prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the um, they become indentured servant, servants. And there's some pretty brutal scenes about hangings and... Yeah. But then they come it's not to for the very faint of heart. <laughs> no, and he does this amazing job with language. Yeah. I mean, some of it is in verse, which mm-hmm. I had never heard, but that's mm-hmm. Scotch Gaelic, mm-hmm. and some of it's in French, some of it's in native languages. Yeah. And um, when John came, he he was very good at all. Since he's an mm-hmm. actor, he was very good at all the um, the accents and and. dialogue yeah one thing i find fascinating about um his having looked at having reading this one and looking at some of his other books his films are very tight and compact they are sometimes small stories they're not epics and but this is an epic when he has time you know the time to you know do a whole book he goes epic and it is so intricately researched and detailed it's it's um really compelling what what else have you um just one more thing about this Mm -hmm. i wanted to say is um you know, I didn't know that much. The French and Indian War is like this, you know. Gets skirted over in Skirted history. over. Yes. But, you know, he, he really goes into the sort of imperial aspect of it, that, that this is part yeah. of the European mm-hmm. war that's going on between French and, and um, the French and English. Yeah. And also that there's so many Native American um, people that are trying to figure out, do we go with the French? Do we go with the English? Um, which one's going to be more devastating and right, he really gives this. you that picture yeah of who those french <laughs> who those indians yeah, are exactly. in the french and indian war um killingly so this isn't out yet this is out in june it's uh catherine butner and um this is a novel slash mystery that's set at mount Holyoke in the 1890s oh, okay. a young woman disappears and she's imagined kind of what happened to that woman. We we don't a young student. We don't know what happened to her. So it's it's really focused on women's education, mm-hmm. women's limitations in that age. Yeah. Um, but also, it's very familiar to uh, the community. area. Um, and um, my guess has been Joan Grenier of um, Odyssey Bookshop. And it, will the author of that book be doing uh, an event at your? 
door. Well, they're going to be coming during graduation ah, and okay. reunions and signing, and then they're coming back in September. Okay, wonderful. To do There's before. just so much on your plate. I know. I didn't, I didn't get to all of them. I know. You've got a sack of book here that looks a little bit like what my night table used to look like before I decided to go one at a time. But... Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Joan. Well, thank you for having As me. As always, Megan, you managed to fascinate me for the half oh, hour good. that you're um, here. That's what I'm here for. And for the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us on Talk to Talk. Remember, we're all trying to walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station.